Hey, uh, we're in a series called Untitled, uh, and it's actually a series about family uh, with an interesting title. Uh, here's how we got there. Here's uh, part of the discussion that we're having is this idea that says, look, every generation in your family up until now has had an opportunity to write a chapter in your family story, in the Edwards family story, the Johnson family story. And, and no matter if they've written a great chapter, and maybe they, that chapter was amazing, or maybe uh, sometimes uh, the previous chapters in your family story weren't so great, you and I now have the chance to write this chapter, that our generation, our part of the family story is our chapter to write. And the thing that's interesting is the family story is not done yet. Uh, it hasn't been titled yet. And so the question we began to say is, what would it mean for you and I to write such a powerful chapter, such an amazing, uh, forever-changing chapter that the way that you and I live our family right now becomes the title of the book? It becomes the title of the Johnson family story, the Edwards family story, because of how you and I wrote our family chapter. So we called it Untitled because you and I have a chance to write the title. And uh, so we're just exploring that together. I just want to tell you, we've got some messages coming up I, I don't think you're going to want to miss. Uh, we're going to take a whole Sunday talking uh, to single uh, parents. How do you do family as a single parent? We're going to be talking about the sins of the father, and some of us live with uh, some past stuff in our lives that has carried down from our family from generation to generation. Cool stuff that we're going to spend some time together. It's interesting, though, that as we were putting this series together and talking about it, uh, one of the conversations we had was to say, look, there's a message we did uh, back that we, we think we need to go back and revisit that message. We need to talk because in the context of family, this has such incredible power to form our families and to change our families. And if we miss that conversation, it could do damage uh, to our family. So we're revisiting that conversation together today, and it's this idea of creating and maintaining moral authority in our families. There's going to come a moment when you're going to need moral authority. You're going to need the capacity to speak into the lives, especially of your children or of your spouses or of your… and have in that moment moral authority, that your words won't ring hollow, but instead will land in the hearts of the people uh, that you're talking to. So, let me see if I can help that a little bit. Do we, do we have a young person in the room somewhere, even though we tried to get them all out of here? Okay, so I need, I need younger, like 10, 12. Over here? All right, send them up. Come on, dude. You're on. Just you. I, and get, okay, so here's the thing. You're, you've got the hardest part, but come on, dude. Come on. All right, so tell me your name. Luke. Luke, dude. All right, come over here with me, Luke. Uh, you are amazing. Uh, it's just you and me, man. There is nobody out there. It's just you. All right, all right here we go. So, Luke, all you got to do is you got to stand right there, okay? Okay, there, right there. Okay, so here's, here's how moral authority works. There's going to come a moment that you're going you're gonna to be speaking into the life, especially, especially potentially into the life of your children. And in that moment, you need your words to affect the heart. And whether or not your words affect the heart of your children is going to all be about moral authority. See, here's the deal. Uh, there's going to come a moment you're going to, you're going to want to say, look, here, I, I remember what it was like to have the crowd all going the wrong way, and, and, and you just need… I went with the crowd. 
I did exactly what my friends were doing. I got caught up in it. I wanted to be popular. And you just need to know that going with the crowd has caused me some of the deepest regrets of my life. And as you say that, you're going to need that information to land in the heart of your child so that it steers the heart of your child. See, you're, you're going to want that conversation to move your child somewhere else. But it will only happen, you ready, if you have moral authority as you have the conversation. See, there, there's going to be a moment where you're going to say, look, here's the deal. I, I used to chase everything that had a skirt. I, I went after every uh, single girl. And I, you just need to hear that at the time I thought that was really cool. I thought it was a great thing. But I have caused all sorts of heartache. And I'm just going to ask you to live this moment of your life differently than your dad did. And you're going to want moral authority so that it lands and you steer, because of that conversation, the heart of your child. Ladies, there's going to be a moment you're going to say, look, I, I just thought having all the guys like me was a big deal, and, and I did whatever I had to do so that all the guys would like me. And I'm just telling you, it's a path you don't want to go down, and I'm begging you not to go down that path. And if in that moment you have moral authority, there's a much better chance that it lands in the heart of your child, and suddenly you've steered them to a new place in their life. It's the power of moral authority as you and I have the conversation. Luke, dude, you were amazing. I, I could not have done better myself. Would you? High five. All right. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. So you and I are going to uh, talk about this idea of how do you and I gain and or lose moral authority. Here's why this is a huge conversation. Because every one of us in our lives has a worst lived moment. See, every one of us has something that we've done, a place that we've gone, a way that we behave that right now fills our lives with regret. It's that thing that when you're driving down the road by yourself in the car that comes back. And, and if you could redo it, if you could take it back, if, if you could get a do-over, you would do it again, but unfortunately, you can't. And here's Here's the dilemma that every one of us faces, is that intuitively, here's what you and I do with our worst-lived moments. We justify. We, we say, look, uh, if you'd been married to the wife that I was married to, you, you would have done the same thing that I did. Uh, if you'd had the same pressure in your life, the same circumstances that I had, you, you would have done what I did in the moment that I did that. Uh, we minimize, and we, we say, well, you know, it, it really wasn't that big. I mean, everybody does that, and, and, and so, you know, in the grander context, I mean, it's, it's… We pretend. We say, you know, I mean, you know, hey, it was, and it's something that did happen. It's in the past, but, I mean, it's so far ago, it, does, it doesn't mean anything now, and it, and it didn't change me, and… And what many of us have done with our worst lived moments Boy, this is harder than I thought. It was easy the first service. Oh my. 
Yes. Uh, we, we tuck them away in the closet. Uh, we, we just, we kind of think, look, if, if, if I can put it there and if I can leave it there long enough, uh, then maybe, maybe after a while it really doesn't uh, matter anymore. This is an important conversation because you and I today are going to peek into the life of somebody in the Bible who thought the very same thing who thought, if, if, I, if I just take the skeleton in my closet, if I take that worst-lived moment in my life, and if I just move on, I mean, if the rest of my life is different than that moment, and it, maybe the skeleton in the closet doesn't come back. So grab your Bibles and go with me today. It's 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, and if you're not real familiar, if you go to the front of your Bible and then work to the right, it's not very far in, you're going to find uh, this book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's a story of a life of a guy by the name of David, who probably most of us have heard uh, something about, but the story you and I are going to get into today is a story we don't talk about uh, very often. It's, it's a worst-lived moment. It's, it's a I-wish-I-could-do-it-over moment uh, in the life of David. It's 2 uh, Samuel chapter 13. Let me, let me set up what's happening here. Uh, David is king of Israel. And he has a son by the name of Amnon. And Amnon is in love with his sister. And so every single day he walks through the palace just lovesick. He, he can't even function uh, because he's thinking about his sister so much. So much so that uh, his friend comes to him and says, dude, something, something's wrong. And he says, yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm just desperately in love uh, with my sister and there's nothing I can do about it. And his friend says to him, hey, no, 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 uh, you're the king's son. You can do this. Here's what you do. Tell your dad, King David, uh, that you're sick and request uh, that your sister come and prepare you some food. And then when she's there uh, in your apartment, you, you can do whatever you want to do. And so Amnon does exactly that. He uh, sends word to his father, King David, and says, look, Dad, I, I've been sick now for a while, and I can't figure out why I'm not getting better. Uh, but I'm thinking if I ate something, you know, then maybe that would take care of it for me. Uh, would you send my sister Tamar uh, to cook for me? She makes this amazing uh, flatbread, and David honors his request. So here it is at 2 Samuel. Uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 7. David sent word to Tamar uh, at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who had been uh, lying down, and she took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat at your hand. And Tamar uh, took the bread she had prepared and brought it, uh, it to her brother, Amnon, in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and he said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this wicked thing. 
what about me? Where, where could I get rid of my disgrace? And, and what about you? you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. You ever had that moment in your life? When, when, when the very thing that you thought you had to have, the thing you thought you needed to do, I mean, your life wouldn't be complete without it, and then you finally got it. You, you went there, you did the thing, the very thing that God said don't do, and you were so deeply filled with regret that every bit of joy, every bit of whatever satisfaction you thought you were going to have was gone. Verse 16, no, she said to him, sending me away would be an even greater wrong than what you've already done to me, but he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door behind her. And now skip down to verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean what would you expect? I mean, wouldn't you be? I, you, you can just imagine the scene. I mean, someone comes in, uh, and he's there on his throne, and they say, David, you'll never guess what your son Amnon's just done, and, and you watch the face go flush and the veins begin uh, to poke out. It's interesting because Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happens next, but I mean, this doesn't take rock. I mean, you can imagine. David getting up off his throne and, and going, I mean, going uh, toward his son Amnon's house. And as he's walking that way, he, he begins to rehearse and, and say, look, I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him what for. I mean, I'm gonna, how did you do this? How dare you do this? And I raised you better than this. And how, how vile for you. I, what were you thinking? Here's the interesting thing. David never makes it. To Amnon's house. Somewhere, somewhere on the, I mean, somewhere as he was heading, I mean, as he's going, he stops. He turns around and he goes back to the palace. And David, ready for this? David does nothing. I don't know about you, but I'm left in the moment and go, David, what, 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 wait a minute. How's this possible? This is the moment your family needs you more than any. I mean, if there was ever a bigger crisis, a greater, I mean, if there was ever a moment in which your family needs you to rise up and be the leader and do what you, David, how, how can you do nothing? How's that possible? You get that it's not a lack of courage on David's part. I mean, think about it, guy. This is, this is the guy that when he was 15 or 16 years old, runs out into the battlefield to face Goliath. When grown men are shaking in their boots, David is going toward the giant. David doesn't have a deficit of courage. It's not a lack of integrity. Matter of fact, some of you may or may not know this story, but uh, when David is a young man, uh, he's actually told, you're going to be the next king. 
Saul has disappointed God. It's not going to be Saul's son, Jonathan. God's going to skip the lineage, and you're going to be the next king. Saul hears about this and decides, I can keep this prophecy from happening. I'll just kill David. And he begins to hunt David down. And David's done nothing wrong. And so as Saul is chasing David with the absolute intent to kill David, David ends up hiding in a cave. It just so happens that as David is hiding in the cave, Saul needs to take a bathroom break. So he says to his army, hey, you guys all wait here. I'm going to go in the cave for a minute. And while Saul is in the cave doing what you do when you do a bathroom break, his men, David's men, turn to him and go, dude, God just delivered your enemy into your Kill him. You'll never have a better opportunity. Kill him. And David instead goes up behind Saul, cuts a little piece of his cloak. And when Saul leaves the cave, he goes out to say, Saul, look, you were in my hands. I could have killed you. And I didn't. And he says to his men, look, guys, if God really wants me to be king, then God will make me king. He doesn't need me to kill a man to get there. David is not lacking in integrity. And so the question comes, how in the world does he not make it to his son's home? What, what paralyzes this man in the moment when his family most needs him? And the answer is, it's a lack of moral authority. See, here's what I picture in my mind. I picture David heading down the road, heading to his son Amnon's house, and he's saying, how and why, and you can't, and then it hits him. I know what Amnon's going to say back. Because in David's past, he has an encounter with a woman called Bathsheba. And there was a moment ill-lived in David's life, a moment when he saw another man's wife and he invited her into the palace and he took his authority and manipulated and caused her to sleep with him. And then when she turned up pregnant, uh, she, he ended up making sure that her husband was killed in battle, murdered. <laughs> and as he hits the Amnon's house, I, he can hear the words ringing, Dad. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. See, I had a woman that I probably had no business with, but I wanted her anyways. Sound familiar? And I was willing to do anything to be with her. And David turns home and does nothing. Go with me to verse 22. Absalom. Absalom is David's firstborn. Absalom is next in line. It's not supposed to be Solomon who ends up being the next king of Israel. It's David's firstborn son, Absalom. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, his brother. Either good or bad, he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. And in the heart of Amnon, his father's lack 
of response becomes just one more moment of failure. One, one more moment that proves dad's not up to the task. So here's, what, here's what Absalom would say. Look, I mean, there's the whole Bathsheba thing, and he never dealt with that. He never got that. And every time since then, he's watched a man come in and bow and say, King David, you're such a great king, and, and boy, you're just such a great leader. Absalom has, and it's been like fingernails on a chalkboard. He's going, dude, if, if you knew what was in the closet in our family, and now, and now it, it's such a clear moment that David needs to act, and, and, and Absalom goes, see, my dad is impotent. I mean, he, he has no capacity to lead our family, let alone lead a nation. Absalom will eventually end up literally revolting against his father. He will literally sit at the city gate and say to the people, if I were king, let me tell you what I would do and he leads a revolt. He will never sit on the throne, or he'll never stay on the throne of Israel. Because here's why. Absalom cannot get past the unresolved issues in his family. And as far as Absalom is concerned, his father has lost all moral authority. Here's what Absalom does next. He waits. He waits for two years. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And then he uh, uh, calls a party. It's the end of harvest. And he says to his dad, hey, uh, harvest has been great this year. Let all the sons of the king come together and, and we'll have this big celebration of the harvest. So here come all the sons of the king, including Amnon. Absalom says to his men, look, here's the deal. We're going to get everybody in the room good and drunk. When the moment comes, I'll say out loud, kill Amnon. And you're to rise up and slay that guy right where he sits. And don't worry about what the king's going to say or anybody else. It'll be on my command. It'll be on my word. It'll be on me. And sure enough, here come all the sons of David. They're in there celebrating the harvest. And when everybody's good and soused, and then Absalom says, kill him. And he's slayed. Absalom has waited two years for his moment because here's the deal. As far as Absalom's concerned, time has not healed all wounds. As far as Absalom's concerned, it's yesterday. It's yesterday. This, this is a big deal for us because, because some of us have a moment in our past and we've, we've and we'd say, well, Lynn, I mean, it's been 20 years. I know. But you just need to know that to your spouse, to your friend, to your former employer, it's yesterday. And they have waited every day from then until now Free to go, I get it. I get it. I was wrong. It was a horribly lived moment. I'm sorry. Because, because, because. For them, 20 years is yesterday. 
And no matter how long you wait, no matter how much you ignore, every time you have a moment in your life that takes you anywhere in proximity to that ill-lived moment, any time your life has to walk past the closet, you will smell the smell. And it will paralyze you. And it will rob you of all moral authority. You'll say to yourself, I can't say that to my son. I did the same thing. I, I, I can't go there. I, I would be such a hypocrite. Not because you did it, but because you never dealt with it. So someone would say, well, Lynn, I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, what, what, what if I did? What if I came in today? And I mean, I, I, can, I already know in my heart, I, I've got the moment. I know the skeleton. What, what, what would I do if that were me today? Grab your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's going to be uh, just to the right in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5. And here's the interesting thing while we're turning there. Matthew chapter 5. It's going to be right at the beginning of the New Testament. Here's, don't miss this moment. David is right with God. David is right with God. Matter of fact, the story that you and I are talking through right now occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 13. The incident with Bathsheba is 2 Samuel chapter 12. And David has repented. He's gotten into sackcloth and ashes. He said, God, this is, this is horrible. In my... And he has made his heart right with God. Here's the problem. He's never made it right with man. See, him and God are okay. He's confessed this to God. He just hasn't cleaned up his relationships with man. He, he's okay vertically. He just is in trouble horizontally. And because of it, he has no authority with which to speak into the life of his own son. What Jesus is about to tell you and I to do in Matthew is going to be absolutely counterintuitive to you and me. It's going to absolutely be different than what you and I would think to do. It's, it's, it's what our hearts fear to do. And yet, here's what you need here. Even though this is not going to feel right, it is right. A while back, I was, uh, I, I was jogging. I know that's hard for you to believe. Uh, <laughs> It must have been like the 3rd of January or something, and I had just finished my New Year's resolution, but I'm jogging, and uh, I'm jogging down a canal that's uh, right behind our house, and as I'm jogging, I come up to this white crane uh, that's fishing in the canal. Now, here's what the crane does intuitively, because it's absolutely instinct for the crane. As I get closer, the crane flies, but he flies further away which means all he's done is he's flown a little further down the canal. So as I keep jogging, I'm, I'm closing the gap. And so again, I get close, he flies further down the canal. Now he's with a couple buds. So now I get to them, and now several of them fly further down the canal. I had a herd of cranes in front of me. I'm thinking, this could go on forever. And then, one crane. One crane did that which was not intuitive and instinctual for them. And instead of flying further away from harm, he flew to the side into the field, waited for me to pass, and then flew back to the canal behind me. 
You know the interesting thing? The moment he did that, all the other cranes followed in form and came back. Guys, the answer that you and I are going to find right now is not what our hearts say to do. It's going to be absolutely against what your instincts want you to do. And yet it breaks the pattern. And here it is. It's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 23. Here's what it says. It says, Therefore, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar, you're in the middle of a church service. And there, while you're sitting in church, you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave. Leave. He says, just get up. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. You get what Jesus says? Look, look. You're, you're trying to be okay horizontally. You're not ready to be okay horizontally or vertically till you're okay horizontally. If you haven't solved this with your brother, if you haven't gone back to your employer, if you haven't talked this through with your spouse, you're not ready to be in church. You're not ready to meet with God yet. Years ago, I was a youth pastoring. I'd taken over a youth group from a guy who was wildly popular by the name of Mark. Part of how he'd become so popular with youth group is that he was uh, willing to do things with the youth group that probably youth pastors maybe shouldn't do. So, like, he would take kids out uh, in the middle of the night, and they would sneak into the backyards of people who were on vacation and have a pool party. And, uh, but it was cool, and the kids loved him for it. So, now he leaves, and I... Uh, end up being their next youth pastor. Talk about a disappointment. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm Mr. Straight Lace, so I, I, I won't go do that. And so it didn't take long for the youth group to go, man, I mean, that Lynn, I mean, he's just a horrible stick in the mud. Uh, he's no Mark, I'll tell you that. I'm about six months in, and I begin to re- I'm, I'm losing these kids. The, I, these kids don't even want me around. We go to winter camp, and as I'm driving there, uh, I go, well, I've got to do something. I've got to pull a rabbit out of my hat on this deal. Uh, I won't be their youth pastor much longer. And so then I come up with this amazing idea to be the most popular youth pastor ever. So here's the plan. I take all the kids into the chapel, and I say, look, we're starting winter camp together, and, and I just think we need to start in a season of prayer. So I want you to pray that God will move, and I want you to pray that we'll just get a whole bunch out of this camp. And uh, so girls, you stay here in the chapel, and you stay with your uh, female leaders. You guys pray. I'm going to take the guys. We're going to go somewhere else and pray. I get the uh, guys all outside, and I turn to them. I go, look, dudes, we're not going to go pray. I'm going to be the coolest youth pastor ever. We're going to go raid the girls' cabins. And so sure enough, we go up and we take everything the girls brought, I mean everything, and we throw it in their sleeping bags and we pile it in their seat, everything, so that when they go back to the cabin, there's nothing left there. Well, now I'm left with, well, where are we going to put it? And I think to myself, well, we'll just put it on the church bus. I mean, that'll be safe. I can lock it up. Uh, we get back to the back of the church bus. I open up the door and I say, okay, guys, load it on. Now, surprisingly, uh, high school boys' idea of loading was different than mine. And they begin to stand at the back of the bus and huck it. So now you've got, think about this, you've got makeup 
and cosmetics. Young ladies' suitcases with personal and private things in there that, that they would never want on display. The girls came out of their prayer time and found our joke, and they weren't laughing. How do you have such a bad… I mean, it was… Anybody want to guess how long the guys stood with me? They're all going, I told them it was a bad idea. I said, don't do it from the beginning. The girls called an I hate Lynn meeting, (laughs) at which I was the honored guest. And so we went back to the chapel, and they asked me to sit at the front. And for the next hour, the girls and the guys told me every single thing I had ever done wrong as their youth pastor. Can I tell you how bad I wanted to minimize? How bad I wanted to say, guys, guys, look, I mean, it's not, it was a joke. How much I wanted to justify in that moment, how much I wanted to say, look, guys, if, if, if you would have just been fair with me, if you hadn't been so busy loving Mark, and if you just would have let me come in, even at even, I mean, if you just would have let me start at zero, and for an hour, and I don't know, guys, I mean, maybe in a moment of 22-year-old clarity. I just said, guys, I was wrong. It was, it was the stupidest thing I could have done. And, 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 I'm, and I'm just going to I was desperate. I knew I was losing you. I knew you guys loved Mark more than me. And I'm not saying that to justify it. I'm just telling you why I was so panicked. And, and I'm just going to ask you, Would you consider forgiving me for one of the stupidest things a youth pastor has ever done? And for the next half an hour, we wept. And they forgave me. And in that moment, I became their youth pastor for the first time. See, Jesus would say, get up. Go apologize. Don't minimize, don't justify, make it right. You know what, you want to hear something incredible? When you and I decide to take the skeleton out of that closet, that thing that so controlled our lives, that thing that so affected us, loses all its power. Skeletons don't survive the light. And suddenly, what had been the thing that caused you to lose moral authority becomes the thing that gives you moral authority because you've dealt with it. 
How much more powerful, think about this, guys, how much more powerful in the life of David if he would have dealt with this with his family and said, look, you guys are right about Bathsheba, and I did this, and I'm just telling you, I can reflect back now and tell you it was the worst decision I've made as king, and I would, I would never do this again. I would never go there again. Matter of fact, I'll spend the rest of my life showing you that I've learned this lesson. Then when the moment had happened with his son, think how powerful for David to be able to sit down with Amnon and go, dude, you know this. We've talked about this. I told you about a woman that I had no business pursuing and that I did anything I had to do to get her. And you know how deeply that's cost me in my life. Amnon, you knew better than this because there were no skeletons in our family closet. And suddenly he has moral authority because the skeleton's in the light. It's not the secret we don't talk about at the Joneses' home. You want to hear something even more interesting? Very often God, and this is just because God is who God is, He takes our worst moments and creates ministry out of it. He actually takes the low point of our story and makes it the platform to have a story. Some of you have been here when we've, uh, we've talked with ladies who've had abortions in their life, and they've said, look, I regret the decision. I, I would never do it again. But because they had the courage to say it out loud and to do it, can I tell you that when those services were done, woman after woman after woman went to those women and said, can I talk to you? They didn't come to me. They went to them because they had the courage to take the skeleton out of the closet. You, you've seen men sit on this very stage and talk about struggling with pornography, spending gazillions of dollars only to find it wrecking their lives. And I'm telling you, when those services get done, they have men huddled around them saying, help me understand how to navigate. They don't come talk to me. It becomes their platform of ministry. I'm nine years old, and my parents are divorcing, and my dad has cheated on my mom. And I, and I, I go running to my best friend, Steve Hill's house. And I'm in there telling him, I just found out. I just found out my parents are breaking up. Steve's dad overhears the conversation. And he takes a little nine-year-old boy by the hand. He says, hey, come in here to the dinner table. And he gathers his wife and his son with him. And he says, Lynn, here's what I need to tell you. There's hope. There's hope. Let me tell you how I know there's hope. Because I cheated on my wife. I messed with my secretary. And, and when the dust began to settle and when my senses came back, I realized what I had done and I went home and I begged for my wife's forgiveness. I told my son what I had done. Lynn, I want to tell you, there's hope. Why was Steve Hill's dad able to speak hope into the life of a nine-year-old boy? Because his skeleton wasn't in the closet. He'd already made it right with his wife and he'd made it right with his boy and so he could speak into me. See, the wonder of this is, is that skeletons out of the closet sometimes become your ministry. Let's pray. Here's what you need to hear me say. Somewhere, some moment, you're going to need moral authority. Some moment in your life, you're going to start walking to your son or daughter's house 
And if you've got a skeleton in the closet, you'll stop. Somewhere you'll want to tell your friends, hey, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a believer. And if you've lived in a way at your work that doesn't honor Jesus Christ and you've never dealt with it and you've, you've left that skeleton alone, you'll not have the courage to say the words because you'll have no moral authority. And I'm just going to ask you to consider today this, that when the service is over, you get up and you go make the phone call you need to make. You go have the cup of coffee you need to have. You go knock on the door you need to knock on. And you just say, worst moment of my life, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm right with God on this, but I want to be right with you. You'll regain your moral authority. Dear Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now. And God, this is just absolutely, this strikes fear in our hearts. This is exactly what our hearts say, don't do it, don't do it. Stick that skeleton in the closet and pretend. And God, I'm just going to ask that you'd fill this room with courage today, that we, we would leave this place. We'd literally do what you said in Matthew 5. We would get up and we would go back to the person who's still hurting, the person who still remembers and we would just simply pull the skeleton out and say, it is, it's, it's, it, you needed me to be a friend and I wasn't. You, you needed me to be honest and I didn't. And I, I'm just sorry and I want to ask you, would you consider forgiving me for one of the most ill-lived moments of my life? Would you forgive me for that? And God in that moment, that you would grant us the ability to look our own children in the eyes, our co-workers in the eyes, our neighbors in the eyes, and say, no, 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 Th that is, that's part of my story, it's part of my past, but the wonder of my story is what God has done with me since. That's, that's what makes my story so intriguing because someone who could do that now lives like this. God, give us back the moral authority to speak. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.